Are you passionate about health and nutrition? Then check out the Nutrition Academy. They offer the most comprehensive, innovative, and transparent health and nutrition educational resource on the planet. They strive to separate health misinformation from reality. They give their students the resources and skill sets to think critically about what they read and learn. So you can use the power of research to make better decisions for yourself, your family, and the people you serve. The Nutrition Academy have kindly offered all listeners a discount for this course. So you are able to try it out for yourself with a saving of $50. Just use the code TNN50 at thenutrition.academy or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 275 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Kirsty Worth from Cultured Wellness for part three of setting up your gut microbiome for pregnancy and beyond. In the final installment of this series, we discuss microbiome testing and how to determine whether, if first, testing is suitable and then if it is most appropriate to test mum, bub or both. We then discuss first foods, rice cereal, how to navigate this new and exciting journey, how to make it fun and explorative, how to remove the fear, and so much more. Hi, Kirsty, and welcome back to the show. Hey, Steph. Thanks so much for having me. I know. So part three today, we've recorded two parts um, so far of setting up your microbiome all with the focus of it being, you know, preconception, pregnancy and beyond. So it's turned into quite the series, which is really fun. Um, What I will do is pop episode or part one and part two in the show notes for those that are still catching up. Um, But for part three, really wanted to focus on testing to start so I'd love to hear from you, like what you do from a testing point of view, whether it's with mums and barbs or both. And yeah, we'll, we'll go from there. Oh, yeah. I mean, what a great topic, especially with the progression of the testing of the gut microbiome. So we always say, you and I, Steph, like it's so exciting, the, you know, this explosion in understanding of the gut and that we can test it. But of course, we're in the infancy of doing that. Um, but it is really nice to know that not only can we test, you know, who is in there, 
and what's going on in our beautiful gut microbiome and um, the different species that we have in there. But we can now see what they're doing. So what are those metabolites that they're releasing? What part does that have to play in our overall health and wellness? The nutrients we absorb, how that supports our brain function, our neurotransmitters, um, you know, our brain development when we're thinking about our little ones. So it's such an exciting time to, you know, really get to that test, don't guess kind of, you know, perspective of instead of just sort of stabbing around in the dark, oh, I think this is going on, I'll, I'll just take a pill or I'll just do a cleanse or something like that. So it's certainly an exciting time. But first of all, we need to look at, is it appropriate to just jump on in and start testing a six-month-old and um, when should we be testing mum versus bubs and all those sorts of things? So firstly, I think we need to sort of look at that understanding of um, what what is deemed sort of appropriate for your child and what's going on for their stools, what's happening for you and that, you know, normal developmental sort of process. And then when do you raise those alarm bells? So really, if mum is still breastfeeding, I'm a huge believer that if something's not right, so if your child is, you know, colicky, if they're having trouble settling, sleeping, if they're having issues with skin irritations or developmental delays, when you're looking at that, that breastfeeding window, I'm a big believer in let's test mum. Let's see what's going on with mum. So we talked last episode about that, you know, translocation of that incredible bacteria that we have, which go back and listen to it, but it's literally that our gut bacteria as mums is, you know, it goes through and actually relocates from our breast milk into bubs. So whilst we're still breastfeeding, it's really what's going on with us and our gut microbiome and making sure that we can, you know, relocate or translocate our beautiful bacteria into bub. So if you are both having problems, let's have a look at what's going on with mum. So we have a whole series of different tests that you can do, but, um, you know, and obviously you work with your practitioner to see which is the best one for you, depending on what's going on. So if it's really, you know, overt, so there's a lot of diarrhea, there's a lot of bloating and gas, there's big eczema and big conditions like that going on, you want to look at a really complex testing that can really unpack, you know, is there any infections going on, any overgrowths, what's happening? If you're just not sure and you want to investigate how can I optimise things or, you know, am I creating those right metabolites, then using something like the microba test, which, you know, you and I have talked about previously as well in podcasts that people can listen to. And so when you're testing mum, we can really start to look at, okay, we understand that for our beautiful bubs, those first really beneficial microbes that we want to see an abundance of for being able to digest the beautiful um, sugars in breast milk, to be able to digest those first foods. We want to see a lot of those bifido strains in there. And so we want to see, does mum have those bifido strains? Is she then, you know, lo you know translocating them through 
and supporting bubs to be able to grow that diversity and to get an abundance of those bifido strains. So, you know, there's no, we don't want to, um, you know, sort of just go straight to baby when mum is still having such a huge part to play in building that new gut microbiome. And so certainly on your breastfeeding journey, however long that is, you want to be looking at mum first. So it's very important. After that, if you're starting to see changes, you're starting to once again see those rain, those rashes, changing colour in stool, um, you know, if you're starting to see those colicky symptoms and once again look for that developmental or an an aversion to food, so starting to be that picky eater sort of behaviour, or what went in one end came straight out looking exactly the same out the other end. When you're starting to see, you know, undigested food in nappies, those sorts of things, and you've you've weaned off, that's when we would start looking at actually testing the stool of your little bubs. So does that make sense, Steph, with that sort of distinction? And it's a really good one. Are you still breastfeeding or are you not? So when do we test mum? When do we test bub? Yeah, definitely. I agree. I think um, I've just got a couple of questions that have come up. So we know that bifido can be isolated from the breast milk um, and we often don't see it in an adult stool test, obviously, because it's a more transient strain. So should we be seeing bifido in a stool test of a female who's still breastfeeding? That is the aim. Mm. That is the aim. And so, um, you know, certainly things have changed a little bit with regards to the testing. So previously we've always sort of been told, or, you know, stop having any probiotics or any fermented foods, those sorts of things, before you have your tests. But in an instance where mum is feeding bubs and we want we want to actually see, is there any of those bifido strains in there? And you would want mum and the microba test is really great for this. We don't have to stop any of those probiotics, fermented foods, any of the things that we're doing. You can continue on with those whilst you do that test. And so we can actually see, are those foods being really beneficial for mum and are they being handed on so in that um, instance with the microba testing you will hopefully see them there because you can you will still be having them in your diet because they are obviously commensal so they do move through the body they don't sort of um, inoculate as much as say you know your indigenous strains like acomancia and you know your bacteroides those sorts of things so Mm. yes we would like to see them in there once again depending on the testing and if someone does stop them or they're not having them then yeah you may not see them in there yeah interesting because um we are still most often giving the guidelines that um, our clients stop for about three days so it's sort of three days of normal eating but nothing fermented and that, that were the original guidelines that came through Metabio, which is the practitioner version, version of that test. But I do love the distinction that you've just made in that it's not wrong to keep taking them because other people, you know, without knowing this, they, they would think that they've prepared incorrectly for the test, which has happened before with patients that might have been told to stop consuming 
probiotics and they've forgotten, you know, it can, it can feel like you've done the wrong thing, but it's just that you're looking at the test through a, a different lens, whether, you know, based on that preparation and knowing how your client has prepared for that test. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, you know, working with, okay, what do we want to see here? This is specific and an individual to you as to what we want to see and what's bubs getting. So, um, you know, having everything in your diet continuing on with that test is so important. Otherwise, we don't really know what bubs is getting if you've taken it out of your diet. Of course. Just as a side note, are there other examples where you would do this, where you wouldn't get your client to pause probiotics for three days? Um, quite a lot of examples. So autoimmune mm. cases, mm. we certainly leave it in because we want to know, um, and often this is a follow-up test, we might yes. withdraw it for the first time to see, well, what's really happening in there, mm-hmm. you know, that real sort mm-hmm. of ground zero And then we want to have a look with um, the follow-up. Okay, the applications that we've made, what's happening at ground zero now? So are are we doing a really good job of keeping the balance there? Because sometimes it's like, well, why would we withdraw that if that's going to be your lifestyle? Because obviously, you know, our aim, Steph, is to make sure that people have incorporated beautiful lifestyle choices, fermented foods, you know, all of these wonderful things and that is just what you do as your lifestyle for the rest of your life. So if we take them out, it's not really a real picture of what you're going to do moving forward. So, and especially when we're dealing with, you know, those sort of autoimmunity issues where there is a lot of maintenance and there is um, specific things that we want to have in place consistently for a while so the body can really find that balance and it can support itself. Yeah, great. I totally agree. And then my second question was around the technology and obviously with um, Microba and Metabiome, everything's based on that sort of normal population data or that, you know, that putting you in this spectrum of a comparison to their sample size to date. So how do we use that data for babies when it's essentially comparing them to adults. Yeah, so that's a really, really tricky one. Very, very tricky. And so if we are looking at breastfeeding mum to have the test done, um, that's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Obviously they're adults and we're going to be having a look at those real specific strains that we want them to be handing on to bubs. So that's fine. When it comes to if we're testing for bubs, We've got our real alarm bells on that is there a worm, is there a parasite, is there an overgrowth? Are we dealing with something that is obviously not a normal case, a usual case, something um, that's remarkable? And so we're probably not looking so much at the beneficial strains because, of course, they're yet to develop and grow and to multiply. We're looking more at what are some of the alarm bells? For example, you know, are we seeing some Clostridium difficile in there or some other Clostridium strains that have overgrown? Or are we seeing some parasites in there? Are we starting to see some overgrowths that we know correlate with, you know, cognitive development or eczema, those sorts of things? So we'd be more looking at what are the problems rather than 
um, you know, what are our beneficial strains and what are, how can we grow them, which is a little bit different than what we would do with an adult. But that's because sometimes, you know, babies at two, we need to look at, have they got an overgrowth of clostridium? Yeah, absolutely. And I know microba um, definitely have, you know, that age range of two to 18, where obviously it's under, you know, parental supervision and so on. Um, But I'm sort of almost thinking about even younger than that, or will you never test in a baby that's say one? So we would, if if the symptom obviously was, you know, and they were really struggling with Mm -hmm. chronic diarrhea, undigested food, failure to thrive, those Mm. sorts of things. And in that instance, we may look more at a CDSA. Okay. So where we, we can really have a look at what's happening in the small intestine. You know, are we seeing any H. pylori in there? Are we seeing any sort of big over overgrowth? So once again, it, it, we may swap to even a different type of testing that can hone in a little bit more, have a look at um, some of those metabolites and what's happening. So once again, case by case, but this, I would say we'd go more to a CDSA at that point. Yes. Yeah, I know that they're working on a test for infants, like microba at the moment. That's obviously just going to be a natural part of the evolving technology and, um, I guess, demand as well. So that's interesting because I want, <laughs> I personally want like a metabiome plus a GI map. Like I want a test that yeah. has all of that and I don't want my clients yeah. to have to spend $800 to get both. But, you know, what I really love about metabiome are those metabolites and the, you know, anti-inflammatory versus pro-inflammatory focus. I love that. But often I feel like, yeah, I want more. I want to have a look at, um, you know, calprotectin or secretory IgA to have a look if there is something deeper going on that is it going to explain the symptoms. So my dream yeah. is to have the combo yeah. test for anyone out there that wants to create one, please do. <laughs> yes, oh, so the way we've got around that, Steph, is, um, you know, in those big sort of overt cases, we do the GI mapping, you know, that CDSA sort of picture because that calprotectin obviously is so important first. And then um, six months later, three months later, depending on what's going on, um, when we're seeing that improvement, then it's really nice to actually do the microba later mm-hmm. because then you can you can still use LPS to look at that inflammatory response. Yes. Still sort of map it, but then you can start to see, because as you know, when someone starts to get better, they feel great, but then we get those lags in, well, hang on, how come I still don't feel joyful? Or how come I'm still bruising easily? You know, why am I you know, producing, you know, not producing that K2? All of those sorts of things. How am I going with my digestive capabilities? So for, for the cases that are a little bit trickier, we, we stagger them out like that. Now that obviously helps with the finances of mm. stag- staggering it. But um, yeah, that's how we've got around it for those cases where we felt like we've really needed to do both because you're right. Sometimes you actually just need to do both to get that complete picture. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just really conscious of the, the testing budget as we would normally say. So that's great advice. Um, I guess the downside is, is obviously there's not going to be a direct comparison and a lot of people like to really know where they're at six months later. So I guess that might be one disadvantage, but there's lots of pros in that you can then get that full picture and um, 
obviously with um, Microba and Metabite, it's very food derived. So then you can really set up what they need to be eating, which most people love. They really want to know what they need to eat to continue to create that robust microbiome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because after that window, you know, you really want to have nutted out any of those overgrowths from having a look at your initial testing and, yeah, get on to building the diversity, which is, the you know, obviously where we see that huge correlation with overall health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So that's great information. Obviously, it's um, quite individual. So I, I have definitely had one example with a little one where I started with Metabiome. Um, but they were coming, that child particularly was from a, like a, I'd say the word paleo or real food or whole food family that had a lot of the foundations in place, like really incredible foundations. Um, but there was quite a long history with um, some pregnancy and birth complications. So I personally chose to start with um, Metabiome there, but I love the idea of being able to do GI map as well. Obviously, if the, the client wants to spend more money on testing and all those sorts of conversations that I would have as the practitioner. Um, Mm. But yeah, I think it's going to be really individual. Like, so that's why it's always best to get some practitioner support because microbe is really accessible. So people are going online and buying that, but we've had this conversation before. It might not be the right test for you. So perhaps it's best not to get too gung ho um, and make sure that you're spending your money wisely in that first instance and then map out a six month plan as to what other testing you may or may not need along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know, you know, obviously we're talking about tests that are expensive. I mean, you know, obviously the big dream is they're all Medicare approved and Mm -hmm. this is something that we have. I know that this is big money, but you know, if you've got a child, and we've talked about this in the last, you know, sort of two episodes of um, <laughs> these these awesome series that we're doing, but the amount of money that I personally have had to spend on my son's health, getting diagnosis, extra tutoring, flying to the States to rebalance his brain. Oh, I mean, goodness me, this boy is a million-dollar boy. But had I known about this information, and only and only had to spend three hundred and sixty five dollars on getting a test or whatever the test is and the price you know mm-hmm. three hundred four hundred whatever mm-hmm. that is so cheap <laughs> compared yeah. to the amount of money that I have had to spend to kind of rein it all in. Had I known that he had clostridium, had I known that he'd had you know strep overgrowths and all these sorts of things. So to me, it was it's almost like a little bit of. Um, you know, it sort of sets you up. It's a, one of those ways of ensuring that you don't have to go down this rabbit hole afterwards. So it seems big when you're in the thick of it. And obviously often you're on a single income because you're home with bubs and all those sorts of things that's happening. But to have that knowledge and that information to drill down to looking at what is going on here can end up saving you thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars if there is an issue, and mums will always know if there's an issue, you mm. feel it in your bones. You know something's not right. And what a great opportunity now that we have this information, have this knowledge, and we can. We can just go and get it tested and go, okay, awesome. Here's the issue. 
let's work at sorting this out. So it, it can, in the end, save you <laughs> hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of dollars. So, mm-hmm. um, but in the initials, it can feel very overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. And even just supplements these days, like the amount of people who have come to me, and I'm sure you guys have the same at KW, a cultured wellness, they're just, they're just taking buckets of supplements with not really much understanding as to what, what or what they're taking and why. And even that, when they have a think about what they're spending on supplements or what they've spent on supplements, they can very quickly, quite easily justify the test. And so yeah. it's just about that perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I just don't think it's, um, it's just not in the conversation enough. Because mm-hmm. there is, like, you know, the sort of um, mum's group conversations, oh, I went out and bought this and tried this for eczema. I went out and bought this special um, clothing or this special wrap or this special cream or I bought, um, you know, this special soothing app or this special soothing light. I mean, goodness me, there's <laughs> for just about everything when it comes to bubs but if your child's not sleeping and we can look at why that is instead of buying all these things that are out there on the market to look at um, solving the symptom we can get back to looking at the cause and applying the appropriate treatment which means it's embedded and set in stone and sets them up for the rest of their life as opposed to the band-aid for six months until that doesn't work anymore and then you've got to you know find another thing and stick a band-aid on there for another six months so yeah I, I i highly recommend like getting to the guts of it getting to the real core of it so then it's just set up for life and you don't have to you know <laughs> go away somewhere and take every single piece of apparatus that you've bought just so that baby <laughs> will sleep for one night mm. <laughs> Yeah. See, I've been there. I've been that parent. Believe me, you don't want to be that parent. You just don't want to do it. You want to just find out, understand, and just get on with being, just having the time of your life being a mum. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Such beautiful advice. So I wanted to move on, unless you had anything else that you wanted to mention on testing before I do. No, not at all. Just reach out. Yes. (laughs) I I suppose... Yeah, probably one last thing is we do have a tendency, even though we know something's wrong as mums, we do have a tendency to downplay it. Australians are awesome at it. Um, Anyway, we're really good at that. But we do have a tendency to downplay it and it should be all right or, you know, don't don't stress about it or don't get worked up or, um, you know, they'll grow out of it, this kind of thing. So I, I just, you know, really want people to know that, you will know if something's going on and just get on with it, sort it out. Don't put it off, think that it will get better. Kids don't grow out of things. It morphs into something else. So eczema ends up morphing into mental health issues Mm -hmm. or digestive systems end up that are out of whack end up morphing into eating disorders. Like these things don't go away. They just become bigger and more overt and, display themselves differently as our kids go through puberty or as they're faced with more stresses. So, um, yeah, don't fall into that trap of, oh, they'll grow out of it by the age of two. There's a, we want to get the balance right from the get-go. Yeah, beautiful. I love it. 
So let's talk about first foods because I've been on this journey myself for the last seven months with Grace and um, I really wanted to get your insights. Like I know your journey would have been really different back with um, your children but also because I've obviously been really in this space and what I've noticed the most is that mums are one, confused (laughs) and two quite fearful because of some of the advice that we're given and perhaps that we've got um or maybe we've lost our intuition because of all the messages that we're bombarded with so that for me has been fascinating to be seeing online and, and certainly in some of my clients so let's let's start there because obviously well tell us what were you given giving your children as their first food? Cause that was um, like a decade ago now. It's a good, it's an important story to share. <laughs> oh, it's so important. Mm. So first foods in my world. So that would be what my mum sort of told me was appropriate. What was in my mum's group circles, the access to information that I had first foods was Farex, which is a rice cereal. And I didn't question it. It was super easy to make. For goodness sakes, you just added either a little bit of breast milk or you added some water to it. I mean, can it get easier than that? Mm. And, um, you know, I just didn't question it. That was just what we did. The nurses, you know, or the midwives or the supports, this is what you do. The um, paediatrician, this is what you do. So it was certainly first foods and then moving on to at that time for me, it was all about these squeegees, you know, where you have, you know, those little, how do you describe them without visually showing it, Steph? It's almost like one of the gels that you would use if you're um, out training and you basically just stick that in the child's mouth and just Mm. squeeze the middle and, In goes the food and, you know, in our sort of case, the quicker the better, the more distracted the child was, the better. So sort of, you know, almost distract them from the fact that they're even eating. So stick them in front of the TV, keep them busy, get the food in, get the job over and done with and get on with your day. Mm -hmm. So very, very different to my beliefs now and certainly what we know to be a, a wonderful way of introducing food. So when we look at that pharynx, which is basically just fortified rice, so there was, you know, there might have been some folate in there or some added vitamin D. There was certainly added nutrients put into the rice cereal. But there was certainly no, you know, beautiful omegas, like essential fatty acids in there. There certainly wasn't any choline in there. There certainly wasn't any B vitamins, like all these things we know now. So when we look at why we introduce first foods and what they do for the children, it just baffles me how Farex even got a leg up, how it even got there. I don't quite understand. So, but let's, before I get on to that, I really want to go back to this understanding of why do children, why are they fussy? Why are they so, you know, scared of food? Why are they so, um, you know, uh, sort of distanced from food? What's going on with that? And really it's about if you look in nature, 
most of our food, when we're foraging, when we're picking, when we're out in nature, so back in sort of, you know, more of those times where we really lived off the land, most food has a covering on it that um, means that it's not going to be eaten by any predators, so birds, for example. So if you look at a nut or if you look at a berry or those sorts of things, they have an acid, like a phytic acid around it, for example. And that's put there to protect the plant. And so it's going to almost poison the bird or poison the predator. It will also do the same thing for us. So we have this inbuilt system in us to be um, curious, sort of uh, curious about food and cautious about food. It is in our primal setup. That's how we're supposed to be. So when we're crawling around on the ground as above, picking things off the plants, we're curious about it and cautious so we don't eat something that may have a, like a poisoned coating on it that can impact us and hurt us. So that's how we're supposed to be. And so when you think about now, we plonk our kids in their high chair, if we don't sort of let them play with it and sit there and model to our children that this is a safe food, it's, you know, we can play with it, we can touch it, we can throw it straight at mum's face, you know, like we can do all of these things. If we don't create that environment of it being a safe food, then children have a bit of a disconnect with food and um, a disconnect with that sort of safety that the food is going to nurture us, look after us, and we don't kind of override that primal fight or flight response. So once again, you know, when we're on this incredible adventure of food introduction, if a child just pushes that food away, you haven't failed, you haven't done anything. It doesn't mean that they like it. It doesn't like, they don't like it. It's just we've got to get down at their level and show them this is safe. This is okay. We've prepared this for you, for it to nurture your body and override that system. So once we get that laid down and we override that system of food is safe, once we get that down pat, then slowly we can start to introduce foods that are the building blocks of our bodies. So, yes, it can be super confusing. What do I feed my child? It can be super confusing. Like, are they going to have a life of eczema and rashes if I give them egg yolk? I mean, goodness me, Steph, like it's, it's crazy what, um, you know, what we sort of, what's out there of what are we supposed to feed our kids and what's going to happen. But the simplest way of approaching it, I feel, is if we look at the mechanics of these beautiful, beautiful little bodies and we understand what these bodies need. So what do our little babies need as the building blocks for them to grow and develop? When we start to look at those building blocks, it becomes really simple to know what to feed our beautiful little bubs as their first foods. So we know that their brains are going at a million miles an hour. There's so much cognitive development going on and we know the brain is made up of sort of, what is it, 60, 70% of fat. 
And so, of course, we know that the those first foods, fat needs to be a big, major component of what we're feeding them because that that's the building blocks. We know those B vitamins are so important. We know chlorine is very important. And so none of those foods are going to be in your Farex's fruits and, you know, constant sort of just feeding mashed up bananas, those sorts of things. So we've got to get that balance right. We also know to develop that gut microbiome, we want to really feed those beautiful bifido strains. We want to feed those acamantia strains. We want to feed those bacteroides. We want to feed all those ancestral strains. So we want to make sure we've got fiber in there and we've got beautiful um, different types of sugars that we know develop and grow those beautiful microbes, but also that are balanced out with once again, those building blocks that we know develop that brain, develop that immune system, develop all of that, you know, the muscle control, all those things. It's just so exciting. So once we get that understanding of what does the body needs as those foundational building blocks, it's super easy to know what to feed your children. Otherwise, it's just too confusing. We, we can't kind of understand what to do next. So does that make sense there? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I love applying that approach because it can really simplify things. Um, and, you know, that mothers, like you said before, that like you feel it in your bones. Like I think that um, it's really important to almost like crowd out the noise and come back to the basics of whole food because anyone, you don't need to be a nutritionist or have any kind of degree, can appreciate that, you know, pumpkin from the garden or avocado is going to be more whole food in nature, more nutrient-dense than something in a packet like infant rice cereal. And the thing is what I think they're doing with the infant rice cereal is, like you mentioned, they're fortifying it. So they're putting iron in it, which is then that sort of trap where everyone's told, yeah, babies need heaps of iron at six months. And so the mums are being convinced that this fortified food is going to like solve or prevent any deficiency. And that's, that's mm. obviously marketing and that's a whole nother conversation of greenwashing. But yes, like, of course your babies are going to need iron. Like to me, it's mind blowing that their iron requirements at about six months are more than that of an adult male like that's fascinating to me but if they're being breastfed then that's obviously going to be really important that the mum's looking after her dietary intake but yeah once um you've started with some of the foundational veggies and you know we personally did avocado and egg yolk quite early on um then we were pretty much ready to add in um grass-fed pasture-raised meat slow cooked really you know in the purees and really well digested of course but there you can quite quickly move on to getting the bubs to be consuming proper iron not synthetic iron and, and not grains and unfortunately infant cereals often have vegetable oils as well so they just they're wrong for many reasons so whole foods absolutely yeah and setting up an environment that you know is you know, anti-inflammatory 
So the, the body has every possible opportunity to develop and grow as opposed to fighting off all of this inflammation all the time. So you raised it right there, you know, the vegetable vegetable oils, um, you know, some of the first foods have got preservatives in them. They've mm. got all of these additives in them that, that the little bodies have to filter out. The liver has to know what to do with it. They have to excrete it. Their pathways have to be able to metabolise it. And that's a lot of work when, wow, your brain is just developing at such a, you know, rate. You know, your body doesn't have time to be processing out those sorts of things. A little bit. Bub's body doesn't have time. They just want to be developing and growing. So, you know, we think about that, you know, zinc, for example, you know, when we think about vitamin D, vitamin C, like setting up that environment with beautiful immune response, that anti-inflammatory response, making sure that all those pathways are just working so beautifully, all of that, comes from a whole food approach and when, when it's in a whole food the body knows what to do with it we don't need a cofactor added to the cereal so if we're going to put iron in we better put another thing in there just to make sure that's absorbed and then we've got to put something else in just to make sure that it's absorbed um whereas a, a food a real food it, the food already knows what to do with that it's already been placed in that in place that way so Yes, I, I agree. Like a big believer of let's get those egg yolks in. You've got the choline in there. You've got mm. your B vitamins in there and, you know, adding in beautiful cauliflower. I mean, cauliflower has 70% of your recommended intake of vitamin C. I mean, we can debate on what the recommended intake is. Yeah. But it's got <laughs> to not get scurvy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. So Captain Cook on the ship. But, yeah. Um, but when you think about um, beautiful cauliflower and how much vitamin C that can add into your diet, I mean, it's and obviously all the benefits of the fibre and feeding those new, you know, beneficial strains that you're inoculating into that gut, and so easy to make. But once again, it can get really overwhelming. How am I supposed to make it? What am I supposed to do? What's the ratios? Is it is it right? All those mm. sorts of things. But I think you can make, you can't make a mistake when it's whole foods, but when you're playing around with fortifying this and adding this supplement in and when you're messing around with um, synthetic things, you've, you've got much more of a chance of not getting the balance correct as opposed to just a beautiful whole food that was developed for its synergy of working together as a whole food. Yeah, so beautiful. And like for anyone that wants sort of more specifics around what I did personally, I will link up an article that I've shared. But, um, you know, like I agree with you. I think that, well, you don't have to go out and buy different food necessarily. Like it makes sense to me that your child is eating the foods that you guys eat because you're going to eat together. There's not adult food and baby food. There's just food, right? So yes, you might cook it a little differently initially, but if you're wondering what vegetable to start with, I mean, within reason, start with a vegetable that you guys eat all the time, like pumpkin, and then pick zucchini if you eat that all the time next, and then do pumpkin and zucchini puree. You know, so like 
mm. for us, like we didn't buy anything special. We just worked our way through the veggies that we always eat, certainly avocado and egg yolks. And then we moved on to um, adding in grass-fed ghee and, and bone broths and culture wellness coconut yogurt came in pretty quickly as well, which G loved, although she pulled some cute little um, sour faces, which I'll never forget. <laughs> my heart when I see mm. it. It's Ever. isn't it yeah but but absolutely so and once again let's bring it back to understanding that whole concept of food being a safe part of your family life so once again sitting down at that dinner table and you know oh mummy's eating your food same as you I'm just having it in big meal as you've got it in you know a pureed form and it's just all about that modeling baby sees everything that's going into your mouth and you know you've got you've got a bone broth on the go anyway hopefully mm. like you said you've got some pumpkin on the go anyway you just take it out add the bone broth and the pumpkin and puree it and then you guys just serve yours up either as a stew or you have it as a roast and then you have your broth on the side it should just be that sort of working in the kitchen that it's just prepared a little bit differently as those months go on yeah so completely agree there should never be any distinction and certainly if um you know a child does have eczema or does have um you know gut overgrowths or changes we don't want to have a situation set up where oh you know little jimmy's on a special diet so i have to make special food for him and we all eat different foods so it's a it's a family approach. Mm. So if one person needs to rebalance their gut, why not the whole family and all do it together and, and, and just make it part of the family process because of sitting down and eating together and communing together and, um, you know, nurturing each other together. Yeah, well, I love that process because while we did a lot of purees early, um, Grace was just so into baby-led weaning, so we just organically ended up doing quite an even split of purees plus the baby-led weaning because she just wanted to eat whatever was on our plate, and she still does. Like, she still wants to have, you know, Daddy's smoothie or my pumpkin or whatever it might be, and certainly now she's... um over 13 months like we're having a lot less purees although I still try and sneak it in because I wanted to get that bulk of veggies in I think we're coming to an end there because she's too much of a big girl big girl to be spoon fed (laughs) most times um but yeah like it was quite organic and I know that everyone's situation is really different so I do want to be respectful of that um but I guess I just want to encourage as you are Kirsty to kind of be quite organic and intuitive with it and yeah do it together because it, it can be really fun um and I don't think it should be a huge stress on the mum so you know that's where we're trying to create this sort of softness around the journey but of course get some personalized support because you know you don't have to do it alone (laughs) yeah so I mean I think we've covered so much today and I just hope that it it really does um, provide the right information to new mums and dads and make it, yeah, like I said, a much more enjoyable experience for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, trust, trust your instinct and have fun with it and, you know, know that, you know, nature has these tools, those whole foods, you have the tools that you need and um, as long as we understand those building blocks of life, those simple, simple things, you 
you can't get it wrong and enjoy and have fun with it. Amazing. I've so enjoyed this little mini series of ours, Kirsty, and I'm always so grateful for your knowledge, but you have such a beautiful, um, kind way of delivering your knowledge to all of us. Um, so thank you again for your time and I look forward to talking to you again next time. Oh, thanks, Steph. That's beautiful words. And, oh, I can't wait. Let's jump into our next, you know, seven-part series. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.